Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. 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 J.J., put down your phone. (laughs) We're recording a podcast for crying out loud. (laughs) I'm a very important person. I don't know if you know this. Actually, that was an act. J.J. is not on his phone. I would not be that rude. I respect our (laughs) listeners way too much. But that is what today's interview is about. Yes. We actually interviewed Cal Newport, and he says, you're on your phone too much, and it's jacking with your brain. I have zero doubts about that. And he says it's jacking with our culture. I also have zero doubts about that. And he says all of the productivity that we think we're experiencing is literally chasing our tails, running around in a circle. We are not getting more done. Yeah, no, there's zero doubt in my mind because <laughs> we actually did an experiment yeah. where we were looking at what interruptions cost us, right, at work. Mm. Do you remember? I don't know if you were here when we did this as a team. I wasn't paying at attention. What, <laughs> you weren't paying attention. You got interrupted <laughs> by a meeting. <laughs> but we did this experiment where it was like, what did interruptions cost us, right? And oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah I remember We had a piece yeah. of paper, and we were kind of walking through some tasks, and we did the tasks in one order, like each task one at a time, and then we did them kind of vertically. Vertically, where we started the beginning of one, then the beginning of the next, beginning of the next, and we did step two, step two, step two, step three, step three, step three. And when you did the tasks from start to finish in order without being interrupted, sequentially, you completed them about 10 times faster than when you did step one of, wow. of number one, number one of number two, number one of number three. Just, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And so it was all talking about interruptions. And when we stop, when we have to like, code switch in our brain from task to task, it actually stops the flow of, of production. That is what Cal's about to yeah. say and in his thing, and he explains the sort of neuroscience behind it. There's even a bunch of, when I was doing communication study stuff, there's a bunch of research that shows essentially the way that we look at screens is our brain processes that information different than looking at pieces of paper, than Mm. looking at people and hearing information audibly. Yeah. And our brain actually, because there's so much information on our phone, so many different colors, we're moving so fast, we're switching between things so quickly, our brain actually has to form new pathways of thinking on the spot that sometimes can actually mess up our overall way of thinking and causes more stress. And there's research that shows if you actually go into the woods for a week with no phone, your brain will rewire and you will de-stress. So that's what we need to do. Like it actually, when you move away from screen time, go into the woods, (laughs) and not everybody can do that all the time, but there's, there's real research that shows that if you're on your phone and screens in particular, backlit screens, and the information is moving quickly that your brain is actually rewiring itself. And the way to dewire, I guess, and de-stress is go into the woods for a week and be off your screens. I and they can love, actually see a difference. Yeah, I love leaving my phone at home. Yeah. When Betsy and I go out, I don't have my phone with me. Uh, if I go up to the property, we own some property that we're building a house on, take the dogs up there. Yeah. I love not having my phone with me. Yeah. There's a little mild anxiety with me. Not harsh. and It's mm-hmm. hardly noticeable. Mm-hmm but a mild anxiety with me everywhere I have my phone. Yeah. Because I can be interrupted or I can constantly pull out, pull out of something. You, guess what the most stressful application on my phone is for me? Um, email. Text messages. Oh, yeah. That we figured sense, out actually. email. Yeah. You we figured f- out how to keep yeah, that off your we phone. We figured out yeah. email. We, we, I, yeah. I downloaded an application that I will not name. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's completely dysfunctional. <laughs> and, and, well, first of all, Mel, my assistant, only forwards me emails that I need. So if you ever email me, I'm, I don't read it right yeah. away. Mel yeah. reads it. 
sends it to me if I need it, and then that email application loses half of them, and I've never been so happy. <laughs> so that's, that's the key. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense when I email you, too. <laughs> well, I'm actually going to release an application that's a fake email application, uh-huh. and it just it's never going to work, uh-huh. and I'm never going to fix it. And the thing is, you can always just go, oh, yeah, my email application is it broken. Work, yeah. yeah, it didn't work. It didn't and then you're out of the woods. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, Cal Newport wrote a book called Digital Minimalism, and he takes us through our need to be able to focus again, yeah. how you're going to get more work done. And then he goes through some of the problems that are happening because we, we use our phones all the time. And then he actually he, he carves out a solution. Yeah. And it's a five-step solution. Wow. And I love this interview. That's so awesome. And so we're going to settle this. Consider if you're walking into the woods right now, <laughs> don't throw away your phone until you're done, <laughs> until you're done listening, listening to, this. to this interview. But then go Because it's going to make you want to uh, drop your phone and keep walking. Uh-huh. Here's my conversation with Cal Newport. Cal Newport, thanks for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, you know, I think people are going to have a love-hate relationship with this episode because they have a love-hate relationship with the topic. We're talking about our smartphones, we're talking about digital media, and we're talking about the fact that uh, this stuff is addictive, and you would argue it's not as beneficial as we might think. Uh, am I onto it? Well, there's, there's plenty of benefits in, in these technologies. I mean, I'm a technologist, a computer scientist, so <laughs> I, love the, I love this tech. Uh, but where we get in trouble is where we allow these tools to far exceed the point where they're a net benefit and become a net drain. I think more and more of us are in that area right now. How do you decide what's a benefit and a drain? I think the thing that I was just talking to a friend this morning, you know, I'm, I'm on Instagram the other morning waking up and somebody posts some political view that I disagreed with and I found myself getting worked up and I had to actually say to myself, wait, this is a waste of your energy. You need to actually focus on whatever task you have at hand. That's one way that, you know, digital media might hijack our day or hijack some of our objectives. What are some other dangers that we need to think about? Well, the key question when trying to understand the quality of your relationship with these tools is, do you use them more than you know is useful? Do you use them to the detriment of things you know are more important? That's what psychologists tell us what makes something into a behavioral addiction versus just something that you like. It's once it starts interfering with things that you know more important that you recognize that there's probably a problem with your relationship. So just like any addiction, you know, if if you're smoking and you're doing that behavior, even though you know it's harmful to you, or if you're overeating or eating a bunch of sugar, you know it's harmful to you, you keep doing it, that's where we're in trouble. That's where you get in trouble. Uh, And this is where I think this growing sense of uneasiness that I've been picking up from, uh, this is where it's coming from, is people realizing, oh, I'm using this more than I should. I'm looking at this phone when I'm with my kids, even though I know for sure I should just be engaging with my kid right now or the friend across from the table with me. I think this is what's making people unhappy. And the storyline that's been told to us from the social media companies, for example, is, no, no, don't think about that. Just try to catalog some benefits you get. And as long as you can catalog some benefits, then you need to stop thinking about it. That's what mm. we've been told. You know, hey, you connect with this person you care about with Facebook. So stop asking questions <laughs> about Facebook. That's yeah. what the conversation has been. Has been, is this useless or is there some utility? And of course, the answer is there's some utility. But now people are saying that's not enough. I have a behavioral addiction here. Yeah. It's not that what I'm doing in this very moment when I'm looking at my phone is necessarily terrible. It's the fact that I've been doing this three hours today. And what have I given up for that? <laughs> One thing that I've noticed about my use of just my smartphone 
and the way it's sort of negatively affected my life. You know, I spent maybe an hour or two with somebody once, um, a friend of a friend of a friend, really, and we were more or less acquaintances. And in the old days, we would have spent some time together. I would have helped them figure something out, and we would have been on our way. And now I get occasional text messages from this person wanting to connect me with somebody else or just saying hello or asking a question. And that's fine with one person, but when you multiply that literally times hundreds of people, it's tempting to have hundreds of shallow relationships and no energy to actually go deep with the people that you might normally go deep with. And in my opinion, I, it, it really drives me crazy. And I, I just don't think the brain is designed for that, those, that kind of social interaction. Well, th there's a lot of mismatches between our brain wiring and these new technologies. So yeah, that's a big one. I mean, we are social beings. So one of the, the clear things that came out of the research for my book is how much of our brain is dedicated to social interactions. The problem is all this machinery evolved in roughly the Paleolithic, a context in which there wasn't smartphones and social media. So when you take this strong drive that we've had for hundreds of thousands of years and then start messing around with it, hmm. but what if instead of sitting like we've done for all of our species histories, sitting in front of someone, seeing their face, seeing their body language, sacrificing non-trivial time and energy on behalf of the social connection, what if instead we type some symbols into a screen that turns into a little cartoon picture? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, is that socializing? And our, our social brain doesn't know what to do with that. Uh, we see the same mismatch happening in the workplace as well, where we introduced, for example, low friction digital communication into the workplace like email, which seemed like a godsend. It's very easy to communicate now. There's almost no friction, but it had all of these unintended consequences. And one of the unintended consequences is that our paleolithic social brain is completely freaked out by the idea of 500 messages in an inbox. Wow. Because that brain doesn't know that, hey, this message is not urgent, right? It's fine. Uh, you don't even have to answer it. As far as the Paleolithic brain is concerned, social reciprocity is crucial. And if someone needs your attention, you better not ignore them because you're going to get wow. kicked out of the tribe or get a yeah. spear in the back. And so we have this huge sense of anxiety around our work communication. We end up compulsively checking it, and it makes us feel really uncomfortable or away from it. That's another example of we have this paleolithic brain that's suddenly being thrown into these new types of interaction forms, and it really has no idea how to make sense of it. Okay, Cal, I want to get to solutions for this and things that you recommend in a second. But actually, I want to back up first. Your new book is called Digital Minimalism, but you wrote a book called Deep Work, and you argued in that book that focus and the ability to focus is the new IQ in the modern workplace. Based on the feedback you got from that book, you actually put together the book Digital Minimalism. Can we back up, though, and can you explain what deep work is and what it's costing us not to be able to focus? So if you look at the knowledge economy in particular, the main capital resource in most knowledge organizations is the human brains that you employ. It's the human brains and their capacity to think hard and produce new information that has value. That, that's the main capital resource. So how do you get a human brain to do this as effectively as possible and as sustainably as possible? Almost always the answer is uninterrupted concentration on one thing than another. The human brain does very poorly with having to do context switching. The human brain does very poorly with having to try to maintain lots of communication all day. Uh, and so this ability to concentrate without interruption, what I call deep work, I argue is becoming increasingly valuable in the knowledge economy. And yet, at the same time, new technologies, and I have new here in quotation marks, I'm talking about new in the history of sort of commerce, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, new technologies like email, 
or Slack or using SMS in the workplace is unexpectedly making us worse at that. Because now we have to constantly shift our attention to maintain all these communication channels. Yeah. Low, low friction digital communication has vastly increased the number of obligations on the standard knowledge worker's plate. So now we have to do many more things than we used to do before to our detriment. And in general, as we get used to constantly switching our attention, we get worse and worse at focusing. And so the premise of that book is that this is a fundamental mismatch. We have a skill that's becoming more valuable at exactly the same time that it's becoming more rare. And therefore, supply and demand tells us if you cultivate that skill specifically, you're going to have a huge competitive advantage. Wow. So, okay, I want to get into how to cultivate that skill. I know that in my life, you know, one of the most important things that I can do with my time is sit down and write a book. So we've, my listeners know we protected all day Monday, we protected Tuesday morning, we protected Wednesday, protected Wednesday morning. But I'm finding that most people show up here at the office at around 9 a.m. I've got to get here at 7.30 a.m. or sitting down at my desk writing my book by 7.30 a.m. or I'm not going to get any work done that day. If I show up at 9, even if I'm trying to be very disciplined at sitting down and doing it, not somebody's going to email me, something's going to happen on Slack, Somebody's going to come up and say something, and at that point on, my brain just works differently. I can't really explain it, but Monday morning after Saturday and Sunday rest, Monday morning is just the power time for me. To, is this because of my brain has gotten some rest? I mean, my brain didn't used to work this way. I mean, my brain, I, I've written eight, seven or eight books. It used to be much more disciplined, and I just figured, well, I got busier. I got more. I have more responsibility. I have more relationships, so it's harder and harder to find that time. How much do you think the digital, my smartphone, is actually affecting this? Well, there's there's two different forces going on here. So the the proximate force is that we have a lot of good psychology research that says our brain is not good at quickly switching context. So when you have to quickly switch over to answer a Slack message and then jump back to what you're writing, you're not back at a hundred percent. In fact, you're actually suffering from a condition called attention residue, and it can take a while for that residue to clear out. It doesn't matter how long you looked at the Slack message. The cost is because you switched your attention. Right. It doesn't matter how long you do it. And so in the modern workplace, in which most modern knowledge work workplaces run off of a workflow where you just have a, a constant unstructured conversation happening all day on things like email and Slack, and you just kind of figure things out on the fly. It's very adaptive and scalable. But it has this perverse uh, side effect of it means you have to constantly switch your attention to communication channels and then back to what you're trying to do. This makes it very, very hard to focus. And it's good. you're going to feel burnt out and frustrated and like you can't get into the zone. And that's because the brain is being used uh, in a way that it's not meant to. And then you have the long distance effect, which is even outside of work, if you've trained your brain that at the slightest hint of boredom, you give it a shiny treat on your phone, social media, let me quick check uh, ESPN or whatever it is, online news, Twitter. Um, if your brain learns... I get a little distraction every time I am bored. When it comes time to really lock in and focus, even if you are away from all possible distractions, your brain's not going to tolerate it. Because just like someone who is out of shape is going to have a hard time running a 5K, if your brain expects distraction when it gets bored, it's not going to tolerate long periods of uninterrupted concentration. Because from its perspective, hey, this is boring. Right. Where's my shiny treat? So you have the proximate cause, like what's happening when you're actually trying to work, make it harder, and the the long distance cause, which is over time we can lose our capacity to focus. All right. Well, let's talk about rehabbing our brain. You actually recommend going off social media, uh, putting your smartphone away for a period of time. 
going through a sort of detox. Can you walk me through how you did that? What happened to you? And as you've seen other people do it, what happened to them too? So I put together a, a methodology that I, I called the digital declutter. And the goal of this, and it, it was really focused more on your life outside of work than work. But this is very connected, like we just talked about. You know, If you're very distracted outside of work, it's very hard to concentrate during work. And so I put together this methodology for how to essentially recreate from scratch your digital life outside of work uh, in such a way that it's going to be much more intentional and the, the cost-benefit ratio will be much more to your advantage. And so I, I put a message out to my email list and said, is anyone willing to try this out? You know, and the methodology requires that you actually step away from all this optional personal technology for a whole month and you really get back in touch with what you really care about, what you really want to spend your time on. And then after the 30 days are over, you rebuild what tools you use. You make those decisions from scratch. I thought maybe a dozen people would say yes, because this was a big ask. I'm asking them to stop using essentially their phone for a month. And instead, over 1,600 people signed up to do it. Wow, that's incredible. That was my sign that, you, you know should what, write a book this, about this. <laughs> this is really a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is really a problem. Um, but it was, it was ve- I learned a lot from the reports from the people who went through it. But essentially, the fundamental idea was sound. And, and that fundamental idea is, you know, if your closet gets overcluttered, you don't just try to work around the edges, maybe take out one pair of extra socks or, or go to the container store and, and, and buy an organizer. The thing you should probably do is clean out the whole thing and only put back in what you really like to wear. Right. Essentially, I'm telling people to do the same thing with their digital lives outside of work. Step away from all of those apps and sites and services that you kind of just haphazardly use. Get back in touch with what you care about, what you really want to spend your time doing. And then use those answers to start from scratch and say, what do I really want to let back into my digital life? And you just let back in the tools that are going to give you big wins. Walk me through this, because I think there are some people who may feel like I do in the sense that I really don't want Instagram on my phone anymore, to be honest with you. Uh, I got off Facebook 10 years ago, have never, ever missed it. But I'm active on Instagram. I don't look at Twitter maybe once a week. It's on the far screen of my deal here. I'm a news junkie. I mean, I probably spend 80% of my time on my phone reading news. And the overwhelming majority of that, I'm actually not learning about anything I can do anything about, right? I'm just sort of learning. And especially news these days, news isn't necessary. It's, it's almost like sophisticated gossip is what news is. Yes. So walk me through this. Am I just not carrying my phone for a week? I need text messages every once in a while. Am I going and getting a new phone number? And then I've also thought about that. I get way too many text messages. Walk me through what you recommended to these 1,600 people. So what I told them was you're taking a break from what I called optional personal technologies. And, And so technologies that you could step away from for 30 days without it causing a lot of problems. So this almost completely takes off the table standard work things. So it has nothing to do with your email, unfortunately. <laughs> you, you, you can't use me as an excuse not to answer uh, your email, but optional personal technologies. And then for some technologies where there's a couple crucial use cases, but you worry about abusing it, I recommend just putting fences around it. And that can mean a lot of things, but there, there's a lot of people who had some social media responsibilities for work. And so they said, okay, but I'm going to do it on my desktop and on a schedule. Other people worried about text messaging that they text message too much. But on the other hand, they really need to get that text message from their daughter right. when she was ready to get picked exactly. up from school. And so they would they would typically add some sort of do not call or whitelist to their phone that would allow it to be in a do not disturb mode, but allow pre-approved numbers to still come through. 
almost everyone who did this process kept their same phone. They took most things off of it for the 30 days, so no online news. <laughs> okay. They stopped using the web browser unless they were just looking up, let's say, you know, what what are the hours for the restaurant I'm going to. So they took all the apps they could off of it, but they, they tended to still use their normal phones. And then they had various combinations of these hacks, like the Do Not Disturb list, to try to make sure that the features that they retained weren't going to grab too much of their attention. Uh, but that's really where people fell, for the most part. Uh, and the really instrumental uses of their phone, like looking things up, maps they would still use or placing phone calls or, or looking up, you know, information that was crucial to where they're going, they still used it for that. So it was basically dumbed down versions of their normal smartphones was what most of these 1600 people took with them into this experiment. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Cal Newport in just a moment. If you've not gone to Business Made Simple yet, you should go today. Just sign up at Business Made Simple. I will send you a video every morning that has a business tip. It's a business tip that's either going to make management more simple, selling more simple, marketing more simple, execution more simple, finance more simple. I just recorded one yesterday that talks about why I have four bank accounts and how I use them. I have an operating account. I have a personal checking account. I have a tax account and I have a profit account and money flows in different directions all the way through those accounts and it makes it gives me so much peace to manage my money this way. If you have a small business, you need to manage your money this way too because it reduces anxiety. You won't know about that unless you get that video which is in the sequence of Business Made Simple, a daily video designed to make you money, save you money or somehow advance your career. It is free. It doesn't cost anything. It's completely free. But each video has the solution to a problem that you are likely struggling with. What will your life look like a year from now if you got a daily business tip designed to make you money, save you money, or make a great decision that advances your career? Go to businessmadesimple.com today and subscribe. What's going to happen to the workforce uh, for this next generation that really grew up on a smartphone? How are things going to have to change and adapt, or how are they going to have to adapt to get work done? Is this going to cost us as a culture something? Well, I think it's costing us right now. Uh, we, I mean, we saw this puzzling stagnation of non-industrial economic productivity over the last 10 years. And there's a lot of different reasons that could affect us, but this was the same period in which we invested billions of dollars to create this unprecedented high-speed instant communication, worldwide wireless communication network. And it didn't move the productivity needles at all. That's amazing. I think I think we've been holding back uh, non-industrial economic productivity because we have fully embraced this idea that faster, more efficient communication is somehow going to unlock more productivity. But because it happens to conflict with the way the brain actually operates, it's done the opposite. And so I'm actually writing a new book now that's tentatively titled A World Without Email. And the basic premise of this is that the intersection of knowledge work and digital computer networks is very early. Uh, if you look back historically, when you have technological innovation intersect with the world of commerce, it takes a while to sort out what's the best way to use this technology in the workplace. We're way too early in the era of digital networks to think that we have it right right now. Mm. And I'm arguing we're going to see a lot of changes. And maybe 15, 20 years from now, the idea that everyone just has an email address uh, assigned to their name 
and we just send messages back and forth to each other all day, I think we might look back and think that that's quaint in the same way that Henry Ford and his assembly line looked back at the old ways that we build cars and said, well, that was a dumb way to do it. Hmm. I, I hope you're right. I don't know if you are. I, and I, I guess you're arguing you might not know either. But addiction is addiction. And I'm afraid there's just going to be some some consequences to it. You called it non-economic industrial activity. Is that what you called it? I would say non-industrial economic productivity. So so ignoring the industrial sector, essentially focusing in on the knowledge sector. Gotcha. And you're saying that all this time that we're spending online and doing these things is absolutely not making us more productive. What's interesting is it's it's just as much work. We're literally expending the calories in order to move something forward, but we're really just moving something around in a circle. We're not advancing as a culture. Well, we're and, and if we look in the workplace in particular, to, you know, to get a little technical, in the industrial age, the, the main capital resources was actual heavy things, factory equipment. Yeah. And the question was, what's the best way to use this to uh, create value? How do we get the best return from this capital? And we thought a lot about it, and we figured out if we run an iron smelter this way, uh, we can produce iron faster than if we run it that way. Well, in knowledge work, the main capital resource are these human brains. And right now, we're not getting a very good return on this investment. And <laughs> if you'll excuse, I mean, I know this, this audience is business savvy, so hopefully you'll excuse this sort of uh, technical diversion. But basically what happened is, you know, as the knowledge sector grew in the mid-20th century, the biggest thinker on how we run knowledge organizations was Peter Drucker. Mm. I mean, he coined the term knowledge work. And Peter Drucker had this incredibly influential idea, which is, Knowledge work is ambiguous and complicated. I don't think that our, our industrial metaphors of trying to, you know, Frederick Winslow style, what's the best way to do things is too complicated. What we need to do instead is treat people like black boxes. And they need the right objectives, they need the right motivation, and they need the right information. But then let them figure out how to actually use that information to solve the problem. So we, we put people in black boxes. Just make sure that they're motivated, they know what they're supposed to be doing, they have what they need to do it, and then they'll execute. But this hasn't worked, especially as we introduce low-friction digital com uh, computer networks into the picture. What happened is, is inside these black boxes are human brains, which are really messy, idiosyncratic collections of neurons, irrational. And we fell into this default way of working that I call the hyperactive hive mind, where we say, well, why don't we just connect everyone together and just have this ongoing unstructured conversation, basically like what we would do if there was two or three of us trying to build a barn or hunt a, a, a saber-toothed tiger, this like very natural way. But it doesn't scale. Hmm. And if you look at it from outside the black box, it seems great. More information is better than less. <laughs> Why would we not want to have more information and faster right. communication? But you open the black box and you find these paleolithic brains that are completely burnt out and miserable and low performing because they're trying to switch back and forth to all these different conversations and all these different tasks and nothing really gets done. And in some ways, it, you, you might be able to argue that Drucker was right, but at the same time, that black box is now not getting one objective and one piece of motivation. It's getting 25,000 objectives all in different direction, and all of them seem theatrically dramatic and important and the stakes are high and the black box just wasn't designed for that we were designed to wake up to go hunt something uh, hopefully to kill something to bring it back to eat it to feed the family uh to get along with the small tribe and that's kind of it and if and, and in drucker's world that would work great 
but we have sort of imploded that whole idea. Well, and, and this is the premise of the new book in particular, but it, the introduction of low-friction digital communication networks really helped that happen. So it was an unintended consequence of... And then the other issue was the, the landscape that Peter Drucker was looking at. I went back and found these old monographs from the 1920s and 30s where these industrial scientific management thinkers were trying to apply their thinking to the office. And it really was clear it wasn't going to work. They were, they were talking about like the optimal placement of the lights to make sure that the illumination <laughs> is whatever. Yeah. And they were obsessing over these bureaucratic processes. Like the, the envelope has just the right thing so you can track how this order requisition form. I mean, it, taking what worked for assembly lines and trying to apply that directly to the office was, was a real failure. And that's what Drucker was really rejecting. When he said, actually, I think we, we people aren't assembly line machine workers. We can't give them, you can't scientifically do this Frederick Winslow Taylor style. What's the best possible way to move in your chair to be a knowledge worker is too complicated. He was right about that. But on the other hand, we're discovering today in the era of low friction digital communication networks that we can't avoid opening the black box because otherwise we don't necessarily land on a local maximum. We don't necessarily just uh, evolve towards the best possible way of using our brains. We can end up in these local minima like we are today, where it's almost like a tragedy of the commons. Everyone is trying to steal everyone else's time and attention, and because of that, no one can do anything that well. That's amazing. Okay, I want to go through, before we, we uh, finish our conversation, you want us to join the attention resistance, and you've got sort of five tenets or five ideas that you would hope we would subscribe to. And I want to go through them just real quickly so that we have an antidote to this tension. First is delete social media from your phone. We just talked about this, uh, but you want us to actually get rid of Instagram. Man, I can't tell you how much, you know, incrementally I got happier when I got off Facebook. And that was 10 years ago. And the truth is I was just overconnected to way too many people, way too sort of interested and involved in people's lives that honestly I hadn't connected with in years and it was just too much. So we talked about that, but then turn your devices into a into single-purpose computers is number two. Can you explain single-purpose computer? Well, that means you do one thing at a time. So, I mean, a single-purpose computer, you would run one program on it. And then maybe when you were done, you would take that out and get new disk and, and run a different program. And now, of course, modern computers can run lots of different programs, which is fine, because th then you don't have to have a, a different computer for different uses. But that doesn't mean that you should be trying to run lots of things in parallel. Because context switching, as we've been talking about, context switching is the big killer of cognitive performance. So I think you should artificially try to use your computer like a single-use computer. I do one thing with it at a time with a clear switch between them. Okay, that's that's not too hard. Number three, use social media like a professional. Well, so a lot of people have to use social media for their work, but then they allow that to be the excuse for them to be idly on this thing three or four hours a day. And so I actually went and talked to professional social media brand managers at really large organizations. And you'll see what they do has nothing to do with the sort of idle browsing on your phone. So my point there is if you need to use social media for your work, do it professionally. Don't do it on your phone. Do it on your desktop. Have the right tools. Have a schedule. This is how I do it. I post these things on these days in this way. Don't allow professional social media use to be the gateway that gets you into a world in which you are just constantly idly distracting yourself. Number four, embrace slow media. You want us to start reading The Economist, I'm guessing. Well, this could be relevant to, to your online news <laughs> <laughs> addiction. Uh, I'm, yes, I'm pushing people away. Uh, and there was a good article a few weeks ago in The New Yorker about this. And, and they, they cited my stuff and some other different sources, but about this idea of moving away from this fast, 
consumption of breaking news and towards a much more slower mode of, of uh, bringing in content, which, which is something like maybe once a week, I gather together some sources I really trust and are high quality. Uh, I go someplace that's conducive to reflection and I spend an hour with a nice cup of coffee and I read it as opposed to I frantically swipe through Twitter every 10 minutes when I have some downtime. So slow media will keep you informed without making you feel like a completely anxious, you know, <laughs> stressed out. Man, I love this, Cal. That is, so, you know, one takeaway, one action step I'm going to take from this conversation. I'm actually going to delete my news feeds from my phone and I've got a pile of Economist magazines, which I love The Economist. And just don't get around to reading them. And so if I, if I delete them from my phone and just have those magazines uh, next to me, at, you know, I tend to read news when I'm in bed, that, that's a great switch. And you get much better news anyway. I mean, some, of this, yeah. some of the news that I'm getting on my news feed, you just, I can't believe they actually thought this was a story. And if it's online, it's being algorithmically manipulated to try to stoke engagement, which, which really has a lot of unintentional side effects. Yeah, analog slower, higher quality, more spaced out. It's the way to go for sure. Okay, and lastly, number five, dumb down your smartphone. Yeah, I mean, I would argue you should take off your smartphone any application where someone monetizes your attention every time you you tap on it. Hmm. There is just billions of dollars and hundreds of hours from incredibly smart people have been invested to try to figure out how to get you to look at your phone as much as possible. And the easiest way to to basically divert all of that exploitative effort is just to take these things off your phone. I mean, if you access social media through your web browser instead of your phone, if you make that one simple change, you'll probably notice a, a, a 10x decrease in the amount of your t- of time that it takes from you without any real notable decrease in the value you get from it. Well, this has been awesome. I've enjoyed this conversation. I can already, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting rid of some of this stuff on my phone. Uh, all I needed was permission, Cal, and you gave me permission. And the book is Digital Minimalism. You can get it on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Maybe you can turn off your phone and read Cal's book. Cal Newport, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. All right, JJ, what are you going to do differently? How's your, how does your relationship with your phone look after this interview? Uh, you know, there have been times in my life where I've made like grandiose kind of claims <laughs> of what's going to happen. But yeah. I will say in two weeks, I'm going on a retreat that I cannot have my phone on for the entire I've week. I've been on that retreat. Yes. You so have to turn in your phone. I turn in my phone. I won't have it. And that is actually the thing that I'm most looking forward to about being there. Yeah. And I'm really hoping that that kickstarts some change in me. And one of the things I want to do is not look at my phone in the evening while I'm watching TV or something in mm-hmm. particular. Like, because mm-hmm. a lot of times the TV is on and I'm just scrolling from app to app to app mindlessly and yeah. there's zero need for it. Yeah. I love it. I, I actually talked in the interview about exactly what I'm doing. I'm deleting all the news applications because mm-hmm. that's where I spend the most time. I'm going to have to figure out how to delete Instagram. I don't want to leave Instagram because I actually yeah. like sharing my life with people. Yeah, yeah. But I'm scrolling through it too much. I'm spending too much time on it. I, I yeah. think I'll start with news. Yeah. And I'll go from I had there. to limit my followers to 200. I could only follow 200 people on Ooh. Instagram. And then I, I, actually, I can actually do that. Yeah, I'm following 500 or so. And I actually went, this is ridiculous. And I went through and tried to delete some of them. And I couldn't. couldn't. I was no. like, no, but, I, but they had a baby. <laughs> I know. And they're like, oh, but they had a puppy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I but all, it. It's always going to be something. <laughs> always going to be something. I could, yeah. It, it, we have to make some changes. I ended up uh, unfollowing like three. One was um, pictures of FJ40s from Venezuela. So uh-huh. I don't look at those anymore. <laughs> <Fish>. <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> Instagrams of the largest pies yeah. ever made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't have that no, anymore. No. But yeah, all the people I discovered, uh, 
you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't think I had that many friends, but there were five hundred of them. I'm like, I yeah. kind of like all these people. But here, this is the thing: is we all know this stuff. None yeah, of it is like super. It's just this is a really good reminder that it's time to make some real changes if we actually want to move forward with some of our work and creativity and productivity Focus and, and relationships, sanity, sanity even connection with human beings. Yeah, then it's time. It's time to make some changes. All right. We got to change, everybody. Yep. This is your uh, So if you do not like my pictures on Instagram, I will not be offended. <laughs> you will not be offended. I will not be offended. All right. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's latest record, Dive Deep Hushed, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. <laughs>